friends, a fish rots from the head down. A fish rots from the head down. If you're going to the market to buy a fish, let me give you some gastronomic advice. Don't look at how floppy the fins are, but look how bright the eyes are. Because a fish rots from the head down. This is often known by dictators and those who'd want to oppose the church of Jesus Christ. One of the first things they'll do is undermine the work of the church by closing the seminaries. This is exactly what Hitler did in the late 30s. To neutralise the power of the church, you need to close down its head, the theological colleges or the seminaries. This is sociological wisdom. But here, Jesus gives us theological guidance. The fish rots from the head. If you want to renew the nation, as Jesus had come to do, you need to renew the nation's leadership. Peter has confessed the Christ in Matthew 16. And since that great turning point in the gospel, Jesus' own leadership has been more and more challenged. And in turn, Jesus more and more challenges the leaders of the nation. In fact, they're so upset at his teaching at the end of chapter 21, we read this. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Or at the end of chapter 22, if then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Jesus says, no one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. As we approach the end of Matthew's Gospel, the question is, who is the worthy leader? Who is the one who can renew the people of God? Well, in this haunting chapter, Matthew 23, Jesus warns the leaders of the nation about misusing power and he warns the nation about the misuse of their privilege. In the first few verses, he's speaking to a broad group, the crowds and the disciples. So this is a bit larger than just the scribes and the Pharisees. But he says to those great numbers, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. They're the ones who have responsibility for teaching. You must be careful to do everything they tell you, respecting, in a sense, their position or their authority. However, don't do what they do, verse 3, for they don't practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. They interpret the law in a binding way. They're trying to so help people not to offend God that they're putting up more and more regulations that limit the freedom of those who would listen. This isn't just teaching the law, which is okay. This is teaching legalism. So helping people not to offend God that they forget what it means to love God in the first place. 
And everything they do in verse 5 is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide, the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honour at banquets, the most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be regreeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi or great one by others. They love being seen and being noticed, being recognised, being highlighted. And of course, we do the same. We love the upfront roles. We love the positions that give us attention, that people notice us. There are many glory boys that I meet here at Ridley, probably some glory gals as well, I probably meet fewer of them, who love the upfront role but don't want to get their hands dirty with the cut and thrust of pastoral ministry day by day. In a sense, they love the air war, but the ground war gets a bit dirty. We love being noticed, but the, the worst possible motive for Christian ministry is doing it because you want to be seen. You want to be noticed. You want to feel important. It's exactly the wrong reason for being at college. I want to be seen. I grant it. I love being noticed or acknowledged. But there was a moment a few years back when I realised that my my aspirations to be noticed were actually coming a cropper. A woman gave me a uh, phoned me up and she was organising a reunion for my high school. I went to Bayswater High School, uh, and I know you're saying, can anything good come out of Bayswater? Well, apparently, yes. <laughs> And she said to me on the phone, so what have you been doing for the last 20 years? And it's hard to summarise, you know, when you've got that moment, you haven't spoken to this woman for years. And I said, oh, I've actually decided to pursue Christian ministry. And there was a pause and she said, oh, Reese, you had such potential. <laughs> Put in your place. Quite the opposite, of course, when you visit the United States where Americans are very credentials conscious and they want to use titles, they want to respect those who are above them, which at first feels really weird when people say Professor Bazant, but after about three minutes, <laughs> you kind of get a bit used to it and think, I, I, could, I could get to enjoy this full time. <laughs> so you're always brought back down to earth when you arrive home. I remember I'd been away for eight months in the US, parked my car out there, walked into the quad, it was really good to be back. It was really good to be back in the classroom. And Sam Crane is standing over there near the library and he calls out to me, Bezo, the skinny jeans look stupid. <laughs> and I thought, welcome to Australia. <laughs> Though, in a sense, it's good for us, isn't it, to have those people who call us. Actually, I, actually, I didn't think they looked stupid and they weren't that skinny, to tell you the truth. <laughs> But it is an insidious, pernicious sin that we seek out power and misuse it when it comes. You are not to be called rabbi, Jesus says. For you have one teacher, you're all brothers, and don't call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he's in heaven. Nor are you be called instructors, for you have one instructor, instructor the Messiah. How can we help ourselves to not 
want to be affirmed in this way through Christian ministry? How can we take the necessary steps to avoid falling into that trap? Well, the rest of the chapter effectively helps us to understand how we might not misuse power. And Jesus' lesson through these seven woes is that if you don't want to win power, you must not lose perspective. What he does in these seven woes, an extraordinarily intense chapter, is help us think of the central themes of the Bible and then let those work out into the corners of our life and ministry. Of these seven woes, the fourth, the one that's right in the middle, is of course the one that guides our reading of the rest. The fourth woe is in verses 25 and 26. Woe to you, teach the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the... Oh, sorry, well, I got this right. You... Oh, it's 23 and 24, I beg your pardon. Woe to you, teach the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. You should have practised the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. This core section right in the middle is the one that we have to get right to understand all the rest. What Jesus is really saying is, you need to understand the big themes of the Bible, otherwise you get the small acts of obedience wrong. If you don't understand the big themes of the scriptural witness, your vision will be blurred and you'll end up being legalistic or, or elevating the small matters to ones that should not take up that kind of time or attention. Why do you teach the law and Pharisees? You give a tenth of your spices. Not a bad thing to do. There's instruction in the Old Testament to tithe. But you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. Those are the lens through which we understand the others. Detailed obedience can just lead to legalism unless we understand the big themes which are our foundation and guide. Jesus said a few times in Matthew's Gospel that he desires mercy and not sacrifice. But so often we concentrate on what Bible translation we use rather than obeying the teaching of the Bible that's presented. Or we're concerned about whether people preach from a lectern or freestanding, but not concerned about the actual content of the things that they say. Some years ago at St Jude's, we had an evangelistic event one Sunday night, and it was we were quite a number of non-Christian guests, which was terrific. After the service, one came up to me, and she came to she came along uh, irregularly, but kind of three or four times a year from a different church, and she cornered me at the back, uh, right near the door, and I used to wear an earring, and she said to me, "It says in the scriptures, you shall not be pierced." And I'm just kind of a bit flummoxed by this because I wasn't expecting this greeting at the door. You shall not be pierced, she said. Meanwhile, non-Christians are leaving the service without being welcomed or acknowledged. And I thought afterwards, what a, a telling moment 
for getting things exactly out of perspective. I said to her actually afterwards that the distinctive of Christians was not whether they're pierced or not, but whether they set aside the, uh, Jesus as Lord, which I do try to do every day, despite the piercing. <laughs> but it's very easy, it's very easy in churches to lose perspective, right? In which case we end up defending a small patch without recognising God's plans and purposes for the world. Jesus warns us about getting perspective wrong. And if we do get it wrong and fall into hypocrisy, like so many Christian leaders do, the media in Australia has a field day. We have to beware getting these things out of sync. Whether it's Archbishop Pell, Cardinal Pell now, I beg your pardon, uh, and his appearances before the Royal Commission dealing with matters of sexual abuse, whether it's Houston at uh, Hillsong and their use of money or not, never quite sure what to make of those claims, or whether it's Mark Driscoll and his misuse of power, the media loves latching onto the hypocrisy of Christians. But the danger is that therefore we lower our standards, in which case we can never be hypocritical again because we haven't had any standards that we've tried to live up to. That wouldn't be the way forward. No, we've got to maintain high standards and run the risk, but we've got to do it acknowledging the big claims on our lives that the scriptures present to us. And the reason why you come to Ridley, in a sense, is yes, you want to learn the details of, of a subject or of a discipline, fair enough. But in the end, the reason why you're here, I hope, is to learn perspective and to learn how to apportion the right place to the teachings you see, you, you discover, you read, you learn. And so manage to create a, a package of theological ideas and for a, a theological ministry, which honours the proportions and the perspectives that the scriptures provide. And while I'm on studying at Ridley, remember that in two weeks time, there's the opportunity to invite your friends along to our visit Ridley night and day. And I assume that as you aspire to leadership in your own churches or ministries, so you'll be identifying the next generation of leaders who you might encourage to come to Ridley and learn here as well. Well, this warning in verses 23 to 25 is the heart of them, and they work out from there as a chiastic structure towards the beginning and the end of the passage. The third and the fifth woe talk about getting the relationship between inside and outside wrong. The second and the sixth woe talk about how we might mistreat people or be a bad example to others. The first and the seventh woe talk about entering the kingdom or mistreating Christ, verses 29 to 36. Because if you get the perspective wrong, if you don't understand the big themes of the Bible and so work out what Christian obedience is really about, in the end, you'll misunderstand who Christ is, verses 29 to 36, and you will prevent others from entering the kingdom as well, verses 13 to 14. Woe to you, Jesus says, hypocrites, for you don't understand the right reading of the Bible.
So who is the worthy leader? Who should go into Christian ministry? How can we, preparing for leadership, heed these warnings today? Have we lost perspective? Are we so concentrating on the air war that we've forgotten the ground war? Are we so concentrating on programs in our church that we've forgotten people? It's easy to go into Christian ministry because you want to run a program, because you want to organise an event, because you like Gantt charts and planning uh, preaching programs, because you like reporting back or understanding the sums, because you like power or perhaps because a particular program makes you feel like you're making progress. We've got to be careful that we don't pursue Christian ministry because we want to pursue a program. Our job is to love people and to care for people and to nurture people and to pray for people. That's the heart of the biblical message, right? I can't find the text that says it's important that you run a camp twice a year. But I can find texts that say you've got to pray for your enemies. You've got to love those who offend you. We get this wrong so often. A friend of mine, I had dinner with him just a few weeks ago in Germany. He's just finished theological college. He's got his first job in ministry in central Germany. He's worked there for a year and when he was interviewed, he was asked the question, what kind of ministry do you bring to us? He said, I'm, I'm not the upfront guy. I'm the guy who, who wants to care for people and wants to do the work of mentoring. I said, yeah, that's exactly who we need. I think you'll fit well in this team. So they employed him, but a year later, his bosses come to him and said, you're not the right kind of guy for us. And he said, I thought I was exactly the right kind of guy for you. I thought that was why you employed me. He said, no, because we don't think that you'll be able to plant a church next year. He said to them, I never intended to, and it wasn't part of my job description in the first place. But they said, I think we've got to find a new role for you, or we're going to have to sack you. And I thought to myself, how sad this guy who's got these extraordinary gifts in caring and praying and mentoring is regarded as surfeit to need in a church that's highly driven by a business model. Now friends, if we want to get perspective right, we've got to push programs to a lower place on our agenda and move people to a higher place on our agenda. It's not metrics that are important, but members. Our ministry is not about our outputs or our social media hits or the public profile of your pastor. Our ministry is about heart engagement one-on-one. -on -one. It's about giving others access into your life, holding each other accountable and pursuing justice and mercy and faithfulness. In our high-tech world, we need high-touch churches. Churches where we pursue the value of human beings, caring for them, nurturing them in the ways of the Lord. So who is worthy? Well, Jesus explained in verses 8 to 10. You're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you're all brothers. And don't call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he's in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. But the greatest among you will be your servant. 
For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Who is worthy? Those who see themselves as the servant to the servants, who model themselves on the true leader who reforms and renews the life of our church. The Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, who equips us with everything good for doing his will. Amen. Please stand and let's sing to our God, asking him to purify us and make